consciousness, health, and mindset. Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Together, we are all wisdom and knowledge. Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the Send Podcast, we dive into the world of psychic abilities with Dean Reardon. He's the Chief Scientist at the Institute of Narcotic Sciences and he's the author of some amazing books, The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds and Supernormal. And as well as doing the research, Dean has also done all the practical work in research in the field as well, carrying out around over 100 scientific studies around the psychic phenomenon. And add to that as well, he's also worked for the infamous secret government Stargate project that we definitely get into towards the end of the podcast. So anyway, we've all had, all sensed a strange feeling when you have a sense that someone is looking at, you, looking at you and you turn around and someone is looking straight at you. But where does that feeling actually come from? And I know a lot of people in the mainstream will just say it's just a mere illusion of the subconscious mind. But is it actually hinting towards a real sense that there is this deeper connection between us all? Could this sense actually evolved alongside our other senses? And what could it actually tell us about a connection with the world and between each other? In cases of the mind, influence and matter have been reported through many cultures and through history. And to explore this relationship between the mind and matter, science scientists have been exploring them for over a century. And how these effects occur still remain mysterious. But it most certainly could be that the ancient belief that the mind extends far beyond time and space could be true. And us as human beings on this planet, we've all had them moments of deep intuition and gut feeling. And there's a lot of people talking about having a glimpse of the future in their dreams and also deja vu. And a lot of people experience a sense of timelessness during meditation. And these precognitive experiences have always been a part of our history. And many of us have learned to tap into them more than others. It seems to me that our perceptions transcend the usual perceptions of time. And in terms of psychic abilities, is this ability something we've always had, we've developed, or now even losing? I mean, has this always been a part of our human biology? Interesting stuff. So anyway, just before we jump with this one, just to let you guys know, me and Chris have also now launched a new YouTube video show where me and Chris just sit down and have some conversations and the type of conversations that we have when we sit down together. So basically we've just put them out, recorded them on video to let to let you guys see. So please head over to our YouTube channel and check them out. And if you guys are loving the podcast and you do want to support the podcast, you can now do so by going to our Patreon page. And Patreon allows you guys to crowdfund this thing and in the process you get received some really cool rewards. As you know, we've never bombarded you guys with stupid ads or products. And if you are loving the podcast, please just spare a few minutes and check out the different ward tiers. And Patreon really is the best way to support the podcast. And one of the most popular reward tiers on our Patreon page is the Ascend Online Hangout, where all of us like-minded people all come together, share some ideas, and just have some fun, and really go deep down the rabbit hole all together. And these hangouts are staged every month. And we all know it can be hard to find other people who do want to engage in these deep topics and me and Chris are exactly in the same boat as you and we would love to have conversations with other like-minded people. So we'd love to see you all joining with that. So if this does tickle your fancy, please head over to our Patreon page and join in the community. And this can be found 
on our Ascend website or go to www.patreon/ascend. So anyway, let's jump in with this one. Enjoy. Yeah, but uh, Dean, like I said before, we are, we are really both both of us are really looking forward to delving into the world of psychic abilities, and um, it's very interesting because I think it, psychic abilities is a topic that a lot of people are scared to touch touch on, and people don't want to sort of go out the comfort zone and delve into the topic. But I was just to start this off, I would love to know why do you think like psychic abilities and research isn't really talked about that much in mainstream? Well, there's there's been a taboo. Uh, it is both uh, talked about and not talked about. In the, in the academic world, except actually for England and bits of Scotland, mm. uh, it is not possible to openly study these phenomena without great risk. Uh, in the popular world, though, as we see on television and movies all the time, these types of phenomena are part of the entertainment package. So from a popular perspective also, the levels of belief in these phenomena based on experience is always the majority of the population. In the U.S., it's something like 60%, and that number's been stable for a long time. So we have a disconnect. The disconnect is, from a popular perspective, uh, many people report experiences that they consider to be psychic, and yet, from a scientific perspective, the reason why these experiences are considered suspect is because most people who criticize them are psychologists, academic psychologists, who are not very familiar with what physics allows and doesn't allow. So the, all of these phenomena have one characteristic in common that is strange. And the strange part is that they seem to transcend space and time. That's the only thing that makes psychic phenomena strange. Uh, so a psychologist will say, well, look, clearly, that can't be true. We, we live in a world where things are separate objects and where we're clearly located in space and time. So if somebody is reporting an experience that looks like it is transcending space and time, that can't be possible. It must violate physics. If you now go to a physicist and say, well, are space and time absolutes? Can they, is there any time when they're flexible or... Uh, things from the future might be able to influence things in the present and those kinds of questions. The answer is sure. That's what modern physics is all about. So the disconnect then is that uh, people who are most likely to criticize psychic phenomena don't realize that the, they don't violate what we know about physical law. They, they don't violate uh, Certainly, they don't violate internal experience. We don't know what internal experience comes from. We don't know the, understand the nature of consciousness. So to dismiss based on theoretical ideas is happens all the time, but I think it's illegitimate to do that. And what makes the argument even stronger is that when you set aside theory and you be just begin to look at experimental results, you end up with stronger and stronger evidence over the last 150 years showing that while we may not understand it very well, these kinds of phenomena in fact exist and can be shown in the laboratory. Well, 
Dana's lobby four as well. I love that, by the way. And uh, you, you touched on some very interesting topics that would need to delve into later on, definitely. But as well, just something you mentioned before when you're talking about the entertainment industry. Do you actually think that the by the entertainment industry, sort of like uh, the way they perceive these movies, like psychic abilities in movies, do you think that's actually a good thing? And could that actually be a reason why the public perception is sort of like shifting and things like that? Well, that's a very good comment because... Uh, people from movies and television get the impression that these phenomena are very, very strong mm -hmm. and, and widespread in, in the sense of, of superheroes, that kind of a thing. And that does, uh, of course, a scientist will look at that and say, well, that clearly that's fiction. That's fantasy. That doesn't exist. And this is, of course, true. Mm -hmm. The whole point about entertainment is that it embellishes what we know. So if somebody has the impression that telepathy ought to be 100% and precognition should be absolute and all of that, of course, they're going to be disappointed when they see what the actual science has to say. Uh, but that's, so is it a problem? Well, it's not a problem in the sense that uh, the popular interest will always express itself some way, so it comes out in entertainment. Uh, it is a problem when people begin to translate what they see in a movie and expect that that's the way the, the world actually is. I always find it surprising that people will look at a, a TV show that's called reality TV and assume that that's actually real. <laughs> of course it's not real. It's entertainment. That's the point. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so funny. Dean, as well, um, I was reading as well um, on some of your work as well. You mentioned some of your work that you've actually, um, that you sort of move forward now in terms of like, in terms of whether like, thinking that whether a site abilities are real or not and you sort of really move forward into wondering sort of what the actual mechanisms are behind which I think is brilliant as well like come from like a scientific standpoint as well but um sort of um honest sort of understanding of the sort of this the psychic like the psychic phenomena that I have it that definitely makes me sort of look at the um like the world in a very different way but in terms of sort of how we look at consciousness how do you actually think um like the psychic phenomenon phenomenon all the sort of the work and the research that you've done actually sort of affects our understanding of consciousness and what does it actually tell us about the nature of reality well again a very good question uh, because ultimately if you think about psychic phenomena as a telepathy as an example of that kind of experience uh, it's very easy to get pulled into trying to figure out how is a signal being sent because it seems that way it's like one like something is sending from one person to another and yet many tests have been done to see if there's something like a signal and the, the closest that we know to something like that would be a radio signal or some other electromagnetic signal and no experiment has clearly shown that there's anything like an electromagnetic wave that's a carrier or a signal or anything like that. And this is true for all the psychic phenomena. They, they don't look like signals and forces of the usual type. And this is one of the reasons why scientists who do know about those things get suspicious. Because one of the comments you occasionally see is, well, these, these kinds of phenomena can't possibly be true because we already know everything there is to know about particles and fields. And if there were particles that could carry this kind of information, we would have already have found it. Well, maybe it has nothing to do with particles and nothing to do with fields. Maybe it's something totally different. Wow. And so th this then pushes back into what, what do we think we mean by consciousness? That's really what psychic phenomena are all about. It's the nature of consciousness and its role in the physical world. 
So if you take that tack, you then immediately come up with two ways of thinking about what consciousness is. From a, a mainstream neuroscience perspective, consciousness is generated by the brain. It's a side effect of brain processing. So the internal subjective sense of that thing that they call me, this internal uh, awareness, is something to do with complex circuits, recursive circuits in the brain and that sort of thing. Uh, that is one possibility. The other possibility is what a philosopher would call uh, idealism or panpsychism, which is that it's uh, a philosopher would say that it's a it's a mistake, it's a category mistake to assume that consciousness is created by a physical uh, system. And the reason is because when we can trace, like if you bite into an orange, we can trace from your the senses and your tongue and your mouth all the way into the brain and show how everything is interacting and lighting up and so on. But that doesn't tell us anything about the experience of eating an orange, the, the internal sense of the flavor and the, the tactile feeling and so on. And so this notion is called uh, qualia. It's the sense of what does it feel like from an experiential perspective. That is completely not understood anywhere in science. It's considered one of the, the, the top most puzzling aspects of reality that science has yet to tackle. And so one of the, what this leads to the possibility that the only thing that we can ever actually know is our own awareness. That's the one and only thing we can ever know because everything else becomes an inference. And so what if that one thing that we know is, as is said in Western idealism or Eastern philosophy, what if that's really fundamental? Like that is the fundamental. If that's true, then it suggests that the physical world arises out of consciousness in some way. So the, the way I'd like to describe this is you imagine science has built up a knowledge pyramid in a hierarchy. The knowledge pyramid sits on physics it's on, at the bottom, and that's our description then of, of where everything begins, matter and energy. And on top of that is chemistry, and on top of that is biology, and on top of that is psychology, and then the very tip of this knowledge pyramid is consciousness somehow magically arising out of neuroscience. So that's what most scientists believe, that's the worldview that science has painted about the nature of reality. And we don't want to throw that away because there's an awful lot known within each hierarchical band, each discipline of that pyramid that seems to be correct. If it wasn't correct, then the infrastructure allowing us to do this podcast wouldn't work. Yeah. So how do we keep that, but also do something else with consciousness that would make sense in regards to psychic phenomena? And the answer is that let's just assume that uh, – that idealism is correct, in which case we have a new layer in this knowledge pyramid that's underneath physics. Everything sits on consciousness. And somehow you then emerge from consciousness into the physical world as we experience it, and everything else remains the same. So all we've done is expanded our notion or our worldview a little bit. So now you look for evidence. Are the people actually think that this is a possibility? Well, it turns out, and this is part of the topic of a, of a book I'm about to finish. If you look in almost every discipline now, there are people who are saying that because consciousness seems utterly unlike anything that we understand from 
from a physical perspective, maybe it really is fundamental. So if you look in the in quantum physics, you have people who are interested in quantum information sciences who are saying that ultimately at bottom is not matter and not energy, but information. You find the same thing among people in computer science and in philosophy and lots of different fields. They're saying really at the bottom is some kind of an informational construct. It's not like information in a computer. It'd be more fundamental than that, but it's not matter and it's not energy. It's it's some kind of formation, uh, some kind of substance that, that gives rise to what we see as the physical world. And it's inherently mental in the sense of like consciousness is a mental construct. It's not physical, it's mental. Mm -hmm. wow. And it's also before space and time. It's before matter, energy, space, and time. So if that were true, what is this, this picture that I'm painting now, then suddenly all of these strange anomalies about mystical experiences and about things that people report under psychedelic uh, experiences and psychic phenomena, all of them begin to make sense. Because if they're an aspect of consciousness that is prior to space and time, then the one strange element of, of psychic phenomena go away, right? I said earlier that the strange part is that it's before space and time, or it's outside of space and time. Well, if consciousness is also outside of space and time, then suddenly it's no longer a big mystery. So this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm now assuming based on the nature of the evidence, the laboratory evidence, that we, we don't need to worry about whether these effects are real or not. It's more important to this point to begin to develop models that would be compatible with what we already know in science and would also begin to explain why these effects can be real. Well, Dean, that is a powerful, powerful answer. And uh, honestly, that is just going to blow so many people's minds, including mine and Dan's. Um, um, Dean, when we start to talk about um, like oh, going in depth onto this, we start to like look into like different realms in the mind of such like imagination and belief and creative thought. How much do they play an impact in all this? Well, all of those aspects uh, modulate or appear to modulate what's going on in in this realm. Uh, if you look at the esoteric literature. And this, this goes back to Plato and everyone past him, or even further back, way further back into shamanism. You find that the, the, the single variable that probably has the largest, largest impact on whether these phenomena uh, or how these phenomena manifest is belief. If you believe that they exist and that they are real and powerful, then that's what they will be. And if you don't believe... You don't see it. So there have been experiments looking at the role of belief in, in various kinds of tasks, psychic uh, experiments, and it shows again and again that belief modulates people's performance. But again, from an esoteric point of view, when you're, you're dealing more with the general notion of magic, which is related to psychic phenomena, that the, the role of belief is very important in magic. Uh, the role of imagination, things having to do with your environment, which modulate your, your your belief. All of these factors, which you might consider to, or think of as psychological factors, all of them are involved in both what happens, how it is experienced, and from a magical perspective, real magic, whether or not the, the effect of the magic actually works. 
Wow. Dean's something I would love to touch on with you as well. And we've, um, we've like covered a lot of sort of broad range of topics on this podcast, all the way from dreams. And I know you mentioned psychedelics before as well, deja vu. But to me, there seems to be this sort of this, um, we've talked about this before, me and Chris, but there seems to be this sort of this huge overlap in sort of our ability and humans' ability to sort of steer or slip our attention or consciousness into another time, like whatever you want to call it, like an informational field, like you said before, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the first question I would love to ask you is, do you actually think that deja vu and psych, psych abilities and all in, in the, um, dream, the dream world and things like that, are all these all linked in some way? And if so, how? Well, they're linked in the sense that they're all part of human experience. Yeah. So they're, they're obviously connected in that way. Mm. Whether a deja vu is a psychic experience is very difficult to know because we... The deja vu by its very nature is spontaneous. Uh-huh. And so what we, we need to have ways of evoking things in the laboratory or asking people to, to, to do a task in the lab in order to get a, a solid sense as to whether, what we're dealing with. And since the deja vus or synchronicities is another example, they tend to be spontaneous. It's very difficult to, to have any kind of uh, confident answer about that. As far as uh, dream worlds, whether it's lucid dreaming or hypnagogic, hypnagogic states or hypnopompic states, again, it's very difficult to know unless you can evoke it. So the big uh, change in terms of lucid dreaming was a method uh, developed some years ago where you could provoke a lucid dream. And in that case, you either, either program yourself to kind of wake up in that state or you use something that monitors whether you're in rapid eye movement states and and flash a light so that in your dream state you suddenly become aware because you had programmed yourself to look for the flashing light that you're dreaming and then you can wake up in the dream so we don't know yet uh, the the means by which these phenomena are overlapping Mm -hmm. but only in the sense that they're part of, of experience so they must be overlapping in some way it's, it is very interesting because that's a question I keep asking myself as well. Like you said there, they are overlapping and it makes me question like why are they sort of, why are they all there? And um, that's something I wanted to ask you as well. I was, would love to ask you, have you ever thought about why us as sort of human beings actually sort of have this ability to experience all these different sort of m- different modalities and all these, in, uh, sorry, <coughs> all these interesting phenomenons and why we have the sort of a, the ability to sort of access these things and sort of, like I said before, have the ability to sort of steer or slip our attention into these sort of, places or informational fields or whatever you want to call it? The question of, of, of why and how are probably not answerable yeah, at yeah. this point. Million dollar question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we do know, of course, that we, we all have imaginations and we can project our wants and wishes out into the world. We're all very adept at fantasy. We love stories. So... The reason why I personally tend to pay my, a lot more attention to what we can test in the laboratory is because at least in that case, we can begin to piece apart what is fantasy and what is reality. And and so we don't know very much yet. I mean, within psychology, just standard psychology, we already know that there's lots and lots of ways that fantasy can impinge on your perception of the world. Uh, it gets much worse when you start thinking about ways in which uh, means of perceiving beyond space and time also are modulated by the same kinds of psychology. So we're, we're dealing with a realm where science is in its, its infancy. 
I mean, especially as compared to something like physics or chemistry, we are just barely beginning to understand ways of studying these phenomena. And that's why most of the effort for about the past century or century and a half has mainly been to try to figure out whether, first of all, whether some psychic experiences are real. And, and then only within the past probably 30 to 40 years have some researchers started to go beyond that and started to look, for example, at overlaps between experiences and psychedelic states where all kinds of psychic things are reported. But how do we test that under conditions where the person is actually under the influence of the psychedelic but also involved in an experiment? So I've been in discussions about how to do this, and it turns out it's not easy at all. It's, it's difficult when somebody's under the, the influence of DMT, for example, or even psilocybin, to want to participate in an experiment. Because from that state, doing an experiment seems like the silliest thing in the world. Why would you even want to do that? So you need to work with people who are highly experienced and can kind of keep one foot in the psychedelic state and one foot in an ordinary, ordinary state to be able to follow instructions in an experiment. Wow, I love that by the way. And um, something interesting I want to touch on as well because I was thinking about before when we were talking about dreams and things like that. It's interesting to me that us as human beings on this planet, we've always had these, we'll always get these glimpses and have these moments of sort of like these, where we get this sort of, this deep sort of intuition comes up and sort of we have these gut feelings. And there's a lot of sort of people talk about, even when we're talking about dreams before, they have sort of where they, where they can see glimpses into the future in dreams. And also people talk about this in Deja Vu as well. And we had, when we talked about this on the podcast with, uh, with Dr. Art Funkhaus, who was on the podcast, he talked about a lot of experiences where people sort of have glimpses into the future and things like that. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, with meditation as well, a lot of people sort of experience this sense of sort of timeliness during their meditation. And I was actually wondering, I know you touched on this a little bit before as well, slightly, but just to hone in a bit more, do you actually think these experiences suggest that sort of the mind does extend far beyond the present moment? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole thing about uh, any kind of psychic effect. It's not in space-time, or at least it's not bound by space-time. So clairvoyance we normally think of as perception through space, precognition is perception through time, and interactions between intention and information and physical processes we think of as psychokinetic effects. So they're all related in some way, and all of them have to become or are emerging out of a place that is before the physical world. So that's why... There are lots of experiments that show that people can get information from the future, both consciously and unconsciously, and in dreams. There are a lot of experiments suggesting that your intention is is expressed into the world. It makes the world manifest. In all cases, they're relatively weak effects for most people. It's not weak in the sense that it's uh, that it it doesn't happen. Sometimes spontaneously, you get wildly vivid images or you get very strong things happening in the world but to be able to evoke it on demand especially in the laboratory where of course remember in the laboratory we ask somebody to do make a miracle right now under the conditions that we want you to make it under those conditions well we we can see interesting results uh, but the effects tend to be rather small and require a lot of data in order to be able to see it clearly uh, the other thing I, I didn't mention yet was that most of the people studied in these experiments are the equivalent of college sophomores. 
that's like uh, second year in in college, and they're doing it because they're they're able to get credit for a course, and not because they think they're psychic or have any ability at all. Wow. And even with them, you can see the, these effects. So we're probably dealing with uh, a, a range of talent, a range of ability that fits the normal curve, just like it does for sports talent or for musical talent. Some people are going to be exceptionally good, but they're going to be rare. And there'll be also people on the other side of the curve who will be the equivalent of cyblind. They could not get a psychic thing happening if their life depended on it. But fortunately, on average, uh, most people have at least a little bit of these abilities uh, and can evoke them in the lab so that we could see it. Yeah, when you were saying there as well about about before about how sort of uh, people like sort of certain students were just taking certain um, courses and things like that just to get credit. It, I was actually thinking in my head there, they're funny, something funny there, and I want to see it because I was actually thinking, what if um, sort of someone's mom and dad pays for someone to go to college, and they don't actually realise that they're actually sort of the Nikola Tesla of sort of psychic abilities, and they get thrown in just to do the credits and actually realise realise and actually discover the whole nature of reality. <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, isn't that what college is for? You're, the hope is that you're exposed to all kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and if psychic experience is such a common experience that I would hope that students would be taught that here we have one more of a huge palette of different kinds of experiences that people report. Wouldn't it be interesting if we were to study such things? Yeah, but as it turns out, the, the, the world center for education about these topics is England. That's, England has something like a dozen universities where there's at least one faculty member who's known to have an interest in this topic, and many of them are teaching courses, probably not labeled in terms of parapsychology, but more in terms of uh, words like transpersonal psychology. So that, that happened uh, as a result of the one endowed chair at the University of Edinburgh uh, called the, the Kersler Chair. And from that, we're now around three generations past the original professor there. And so we have three generations of doctorate-level teachers, most of whom are in England, some are in other countries now. Uh, but that that makes uh, where you guys are the basically the world center, for at least for education in this domain. Just something else I wanted to touch on with you as well, just to sort of change gears a little bit, Dean, as well. I mean, a lot of sort of, um, something I would love to ask you, and I know a lot of sort of historical literature and things like that, uh, in terms of intuition, it's always been associated with sort of many different centers within the body. And I know a lot of sort of people now are talking about how we actually have three brains and talk about how one's in the head, one's in the heart, one's in the head and one's in the gut. And then obviously that's a very interesting conversation as well. But do you have any, have any sort of any thoughts on when the body is given information? Like, is there any differences in between between sort of psychic abilities between the body and mind? Well, a large class of studies now on psi abilities involves psychophysiological measures. Mm -hmm. So this means skin conductance, heart rate, uh, pupil dilation, where where you're gazing with your pupil, with your eye, uh, lots of other measures like that, and blood pressure and so on, and also EEG measures. So these are all at the unconscious level. So it's all body stuff, or at least it's it's below the level of conscious awareness. Those effects generally in the laboratory are a lot stronger 
than any time that you ask somebody to be psychic. So conscious level psychic ability in the average person is not very good. In a, in a highly talented person, they, they can get it at, at the conscious level. But for most people, it's not so good. And so if you use the body as a detector of various kinds of effects, then you get much, much stronger responses. Uh, interestingly, one of the you, you mentioned about the different centers of possible intelligence in the body, including the gut. Mm. So the, the the gut has the same kind of uh, of brain cells, astrocytes, as you have in your brain, and there's actually quite a dense structure and uh, roughly around your solar plexus. Wow. So we did an experiment one time to see if the term gut feelings might reflect that the gut actually does have feelings and not only have feelings but have it in a psychic way so what we did was we, we have this experimental design where you you take two people you separate them you monitor the physiology of one or both people at the same time and so now it's like a telepathy experiment except that you're not asking people to send something mentally you're doing a stimulus on one of them and seeing if the other one responds so in this experiment <clears throat> we we had the person that we would call the receiver, meaning the one receiving information, even though it's not we're not literally thinking about sending and receiving, but just as a way of talking about the roles. So on the receiver person was inside a heavily shielded room and about 50 meters away from the person who was sending, who was in a different room. The person who's receiving was attached to a physiological measurement called the electrogastrogram. This is a couple of electrodes you put over your stomach that measures the electrical effect associated with peristalsis. And so it's literally measuring gut sensations, the movement of the viscera. Uh, and meanwhile, the sender is in another room, and at random times, the sender sees two things popping up on a video screen. One is the, uh, the face of the receiver, the live video stream of the face, and the other is a little movie that I made that lasts for a minute. It had uh, pictures of different kinds of emotional things along with music that was associated with the emotion as well. So one emotion could be anger. You'd see pictures of angry people and kind of angry heavy metal music. Or it might be beauty where you'd see uh, puppies and babies and happy music and that sort of thing. So there were four different kinds of emotions, including one that was completely neutral. So there was uh, n no music or maybe just a droning tone and things like uh, black and white pictures of an ashtray or a lamp, something without emotional content. And the idea was that when the sender was in an emotional state as, as, as a result of watching these emo movies, which are designed to be emotional, uh, would the gut of the receiver respond. Now the people we used in this experiment knew each other, they came in as, as emotionally bonded pairs, so we had some reason to believe that they, they might feel something about the other person. And we, we then studied, well, what is the effect of the emotions on the gut? And we found that during the highly emotional uh, states, where the receiver of course had no idea not only what the sender was seeing, but when they were seeing it. They were just sitting in a room wired up to our equipment. We found that their gut was much more active wow. when the sender was getting emotional as a result of looking at our movies as compared to when the sender was just looking at the neutral um, stimulus, which had no emotion in it at all.
So this suggests that there was something about the gut, uh, which is related to gut feelings, which is a kind of gut-level telepathy, for want of a better term. Wow. Well, and then how can you like evolve from that? How can you expand on like diving into that further into your research to see if there's uncover even more? Well, there's there's a million things that could be done. The uh, the primary uh, constraint in all of our research is resources. So it takes time and money to do every experiment. So almost everything that we do is paid for by grants that we get. And, and donations. So we sometimes have the freedom to be able to do what we want. Uh, and other times there's a request for proposals and we write a grant and then we have to do what we proposed, which matches the nature of the grant. So we don't have complete freedom in, in deciding to study anything that we want. Uh, fortunately, uh, I've been successful and my colleagues now are also successful at uh, getting grants to do more or less what we want to do. And so we have uh, seven, seven scientists now at the institute where I work, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which by the way is ions.org or noetic.org. Uh, we, we all have uh, interests in what might be thought of as non-local consciousness and we're pursuing it in, in different ways. So my current interest now is uh, mind-matter interaction at the quantum scale. I've been doing that for about eight years now. Uh, we have others who are interested in phenomena like channeling, uh, mediumship, precognition, uh, the genetics associated with psychic ability, uh, and we're making we're we're soon going to release um, an app on the iPhone, which is we call PsyQ, which is like an IQ, except it's for uh, for psychic ability, and we, we hope, of course, that tens of thousands of people will use that app, and in the meantime, every time they use it, we get data uh, based on their use. So we hope to develop a an equivalent of an, of an IQ only for psychic ability through that app. Wow. Well, I hope it all comes off, Dean. And Dean, in terms of like psychic abilities, is like these abilities something we've always had, like or have we developed and are we now even losing them? I mean... Has this always been a part of our human biology? I think it's associated with with sentience. It's not a human-centric thing. Uh, evolution does modulate it in the sense that evolution has shaped our, our brain, our body, and our attention to pay very close attention to here and now. And, and you can see very easily why that has happened because uh, if you're not paying attention to the tiger who's standing directly in front of you, but your mind is off on Pluto somewhere, you're not going to survive. So after many, many generations, we today have, have learned to pay very close attention to right here and right now. And that means not psychic. So evolution may be pushing us away from having to require a sensitivity to these kinds of phenomena. Whereas by comparison, if you look at indigenous societies around the world, they use these kinds of phenomena all the time because they, they have to. They, at least the shaman within the group has to. Uh, there has to be at least one person around who knows uh, how to keep the tribe alive and out of danger. Uh, today, there's less need for that, so we, we, don't, we don't need to, to have the ability. 
Uh, but there's always some talented people out there who are basically modern shamans, whether they know it or not, and they do have better access. So the reason why I think this is really about the nature of consciousness and not about human-centric consciousness is because of experiments involving animals uh, and even all the way down to insects, uh, suggesting that they, under the right conditions, the right experimental conditions, have access to the same kind of information. Well, Dean, before as well, I want to jump on a point you said as well, because you were talking about evolution sort of causing us to devolve the psychic ability. What, have you ever thought about what this could sort of be? What, what, what could be actually, what things in sort of evolution or what things in actually in the world could actually be causing this psychic ability to devolve? Have you ever thought about that? Are you saying to evolve or to devolve? To, to de- devolve, sorry. Yeah, to devolve. Yeah. Well, because we don't need it. We don't need clairvoyance because you can use FaceTime on an iPhone. Yeah. Uh, we, we and we have television, and we have you, you know on and on and on. A lot of the things that used to require psycho, some kind of a, 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 a psychokinetic effect or even a clairvoyant effect, we have means of doing that automatically now through technology. Mm-hmm. So the need to do it through a natural means is not there. So that that's why it would devolve. If you don't need something, it eventually goes away. Yeah, it's very interesting that because I was actually thinking there in terms of sort of like you said there about this sort of how we have sort of iPhones and things like that, iPhones and things like that. Um, in this, I was actually thinking just to ask you another question, a spin-off from that. In my mind I had there sort of this ability that we do now have to sort of communicate with people all over the world. Sort of obviously, technology is allowing us to to do what sort of psychic abilities in the past, like obviously what the internet is doing now. Sort of say, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, is that sort of is he? I mean, this is a bit different seeing this but is the sort of internet now sort of allowing the human race to sort of operate on this sort of like psychic medium sort of say in a sense yeah it 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 fits what uh what teilhard de chardin uh had said about the what he called the neosphere Mm -hmm. that there's this electronic membrane that is slowly connecting everyone on the entire planet and uh eventually it kind of takes on a mind of its own It's like the evolution of the entire planet rather than evolution of individuals or groups or or countries, but a a global consciousness, if you will. Yeah, I think we're we're heading in that way. And indigenous peoples already knew that there was something like that, right? So, I mean, they had a better sense without all of the distractions of technology, uh, a, a, a closer sense of the nature of consciousness uh, than we do today because we're so distracted by everything. So if this were true, by the way, there's a way to test this idea. If you look at people who uh, who meditate and you ask them, uh, have you had various kinds of experiences? And some of the we've we've asked we asked questions about synchronicities and clairvoyance and other kinds of psychic things, uh, and we find that basically three quarters of meditators spontaneously have these experiences. So, of course, the whole point of meditation is that you're quieting your mind, you're, you're learning how to discriminate between the outside and the inside world, and the more sensitive you get to your deeper mind, the more these kinds of interconnected phenomena that transcend space-time become obvious. And so indigenous peoples even though they, they had their own troubles in, in surviving, uh, they weren't distracted in the ways that we are, and they almost certainly had much better contact with these kinds of phenomena than the average person does today. 
in the Western world anyway. Wow, Dina, that's powerful. Uh, Dina, I was just wondering, um, the, the people who actually show like more of these psychic abilities than others, are these more like of a strengthened mind? Or are these minds which is more like fragile and they're missing something or part of the human connection? Are they? How, how do you, would you define the minds? Would it actually be a strengthened mind or a, more of a fragile mind? That's a very interesting question. Uh, it, it's, uh, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that. Um, so I'll make something up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would guess that uh, there are people who we think of as being super sensitive. Uh, they're emotionally sensitive. They seem to be sensitive to electromagnetic uh, instruments. They, their health is fragile. Uh, oftentimes, I've met people like that who also seem to be very sensitive psychically. In fact, almost too sensitive and that they're, they're sometimes are not well-grounded. So if you're not well-grounded, it, it means that you're not able to take care of yourself very well. You know, you're, you're constantly worrying about either your mental or physical health or it is being affected in some way, and you can't hold a job, and you can't take care of yourself, and so on. So that's not, obviously, that's not a good state to be in, to be too sensitive. There are others, though, that I've met who you would never guess that they also happen to be incredibly psychic. Uh, I'm thinking of people I know in the military and people in business who are amazingly psychic, uh, but extremely well-grounded, and as a result, very successful in what they do. I've seen this in the entertainment business and in the military and, uh, and in business. Uh, so maybe what we're talking about then is that the phenomena itself could exist in anybody. There, it could be, but like everything else that we see in, in human beings, there's a normal curve. So some people are on a super sensitive side of that normal curve and may not be very well grounded. They don't like, in fact, they would like to be able to turn off the psychic stuff if they could. And on the other side of the curve, we have people who are fortunate in that they're very talented psychically, even though they may think of it more in terms of intuition or something like that. Uh, but they're also very well grounded, they're intelligent, they're, they have resources, and they typically become very successful. So I don't know, what I'm saying here then is that it's not clear whether it's a strong mind or a weak mind. I'm not sure that that distinction is the correct one. It's more like they're different, different bodies, and the, uh, your body and your mind become very closely related to each other in the sense that if you have a super sensitive body, just the, the physical makeup of your, of your body, your mind is going to reflect that, and vice versa. Someone who has a very powerful body is likely to have a more powerful mind, and, and that you're, you're not worrying about what's happening to your body. So there's a very broad range here, and it, it, it's not easy to make a, a clean cut as to what kind of a mind is the, the one that's going to be more psychic. Yeah, it's fa it is fascinating. It's it's really it's a really deep thought to think about that. And it was a good question by Chris actually, and um, it's very interesting because um, before as well, Dean, I want to jump on a point you said because when you talked about you touched on the collective consciousness, I was actually thinking there as well. It's very interesting because we've seen us as human beings on this planet, we've all sort of sensed that strange feeling where you sort of when you have that sort of sense when someone is looking at you and you turn around and actually someone is looking at you, which is very interesting to me. And it's very interesting to me because I was actually trying to like think in my mind where does that actually feeling come from, and just to tie as well before you've seen about the collective consciousness as well and I, I know a lot of obviously people in sort of mainstream media and things that I just see that sort of that phenomenon is sort of just an illusion of the mind 
illusion of the subconscious mind, which I completely don't think it is. But um, I was actually thinking, is that sort of, to me, it seems that it's like it's sort of actually hit, hinting towards sort of a real sense. I mean, is this, to, to tie in what you were saying before about the collective conscious as well, I mean, is there a, is this sort of, is there a sort of, um, deeper connection between us all i mean do you think this sort of this sense is sort, sort of revolved alongside our other senses i mean what do you think this actually tells us about our connection between all of us in the world between each other well there, there's two main questions there yeah, one, one is <laughs> about the the feeling of being stared at uh, of which there have been many many experiments and we we know that that's a real phenomenon uh we see it both uh, consciously, but primarily subconsciously or unconsciously. We see that if someone is staring at, at you, then your physiology is affected. Your sympathetic nervous system is aroused. And that actually makes a lot of sense from a, an evolutionary point of view, because if a predator is staring at you, you had better become aware of it. So there's one case where that particular sense is still, there are not there that many tigers wandering around in cities. So People don't need it too much, but there are other kind of predators. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that may be one of the, the few psychic effects that still exist in many people and is not that difficult to measure in the laboratory. But whether that's related to a collective consciousness is a different question. Because the, co- the collective idea, the, mo- the moment that you accept that something like the feeling of being stared at or telepathy is real, then there has to be something like a collective consciousness because it means that your mind is not just inside your head mm-hmm. it's distributed somehow it's it, it extends beyond your your where you think your skull is and that suggests that there it interacts with all other minds and this again has to go back to what what do we think consciousness is so the the way i'd like to think of it is that uh there is something like uh, consciousness with a small c which is your personal sense of awareness. Uh, But there's also a consciousness with a large C, which we might think of as a universal consciousness, a universal awareness that transcends everything. It's just like the background state that everything exists in, and it's from that universal consciousness that the physical world emerges as as we experience it. But the little C consciousness is made up out of the same stuff as the big C consciousness. And, and that's why each individual has the same ability of, to have awareness that transcends space and time, because it's part of this large C consciousness. And it's also why individuals can manifest things in the physical world, because if, we're, if, if this hypothesis is correct, that there's some kind of a universal consciousness out there which is more fundamental in the physical world, and the physical world emerges out of it, then you as having a little piece of that in yourself, ought to be able to make things manifest too. Of course, what I just described is the essence of magic. It's the notion that your intention will literally warp reality a little bit so as to cause things to happen that you wish. So there's a lot of experiments that are relevant to, to, the, to these notions. Does, does your intention actually change the behavior of the physical world? The answer is yes to a small degree. Uh, can you perceive through space and time? Yes, lots of experiments show that. So this model then of something like a universal consciousness, it appears to fracture into, like on Earth, seven billion individual small Cs, mm-hmm. 
each each individual, but it's really part of the big shebang. Like, I mean, the metaphor sometimes used that the ocean is made up of a whole bunch of little drops, and that something like that is going on here. Uh, the the reason why the metaphor doesn't work is because the, we we can say that the ocean is made up of seven billion drops. That's not quite right because the, the ocean is probably a whole lot bigger than seven billion drops, and when the drops are together, they're no longer distinct. Uh, so maybe it's more a better metaphor is when you look at the ocean from a distance, you see crests of the wave, and so each of us is like a crest of a wave. Oh. We're still part of the big ocean but we have a momentary existence as something that looks separate, but in fact is not really separate. Well, great answer, by the way, as well. And actually popped in my mind, it makes me think as well, which me and Chris have been talking about a lot. And I was actually thinking, you know, it makes me actually think that we're just sort of, us as human beings on this planet now, we, are, we could just actually sort of just be consciousness, sort of expressing ourselves, sort of like through consciousness itself could be expressing itself through all the individuals on the planet. And um, I know as well a German theorist as well called uh, Koch as well, he talks about how, us as human beings and on this planet now what we're experiencing we're actually just a universe sort of expressing itself through us coming to know itself mm-hmm. have you have you heard that i was like whoa what the hell when i heard that oh yeah yeah that's a, a common idea in um mostly in philosophy but it's it's in many ways it's the essence of much of eastern philosophy yeah. consciousness is expressing itself in many many different ways uh, our, our universe may be just one way, and human beings are just one way, but the idea is that it's, it's expressing because that's what it does. It's a creative source, and it begins to know itself better through us. Yeah. Oh. Brilliant. It's amazing yeah, it's that. It's absolutely powerful. amazing. It blows your mind when you do think about it that far. It's something else as well, Dean. I would love to know your thoughts on as well. And we're talking about sort of uh, the collective consciousness before as well. I would love to know your thoughts on um, sort of the implications of sort of the global mind. Like, I'm not sure if you've heard, uh, you know, like Ray Kurzweil, because he's talking about how in the future we could all sort of be connected to like sort of one uh, giant mind. And I know as well a lot of, a lot of sort of uh, futuristic, uh, f- futurists are talking about this, how sort of we're going to use neural nets and sort of become one mind. I know it's quite out in the future and things like that but you never know what's around the corner but if that is the case and this does happen and reoccurs while well is right could that actually could that actually have a, like a, a huge effect on sort of the human evolution and could this also spark a new sort of evolution and psychic abilities have you ever thought about that and i would love to know your thoughts on it sure uh i think at some level there already is one mind yeah uh we some people can sense it uh we've done experiments looking at the relationship between large-scale events that happen that, that the media carries immediately around the planet. So you have hundreds of millions and perhaps a billion people all paying attention to the same thing at the same time. And then we look at measures around the physical world to see if all of that attention, this attention of this giant mind, is affecting the physical world. And the, the short answer is yes, it does. So. If this is then artificially enhanced by taking what we already see as instant media around the world and connecting it through something like uh, like EEG-based neural networks and other means of more uh, tightly connecting people around the world, then I think it's it's likely that we'll begin to see changes in the in the physical world itself. So not just a mental effect, but it's a physical effect that that will mirror that mental effect. But now 
think about the way that uh, collective mind has portrayed in the media in terms of stories and, and movies, television. Uh, on the, the old Star Trek um, series, there was the idea of the Borg. Do you remember yeah, yeah. seeing that? So the, the Borg is a collective intelligence. Uh, the way it worked was not presented very nicely. It, basically, the intelligence would attack um, people and then absorb them into the Borg. They'd become like robot uh, cyborg things that were connected to the giant mind. That's presented as a horrific scenario. We, we resist it like crazy. But there are many other stories from Shakespeare's The Tempest to uh, movies like The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There are many stories that, that talk about the, the aliens coming upon us trying to absorb us into the hive, into the hive mind. And the stories always present the protagonists, which are us, as fighting like crazy to avoid being absorbed into the hive, even though the people who are absorbed into the hive say this is the most wonderful thing ever. We, we feel great. There's no conflict. We finally have peace on earth. What are you fighting for? And so this is a, a basic tension that we have. We, we like the sense of sovereignty of our own mind and body. Uh, in the United States, uh, it's the image of the cowboy. It, the, the cowboy is this rugged individual, doesn't want to have anything to do with the government or anybody else. Like, I'll completely stand alone. That's, that's like a, an icon of, of, of what it means to be an American, at least as the way it's presented in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> and so anything that, that is now saying, no, you, need, you actually need to come together and act as one creature. And if you do that, then there is no conflict. There's no inequality. There's peace. Like, why would anybody ever not want to do that? Well, it's because you have to give over part of yourself to the collective. And so now imagine that we have uh, an amazingly a robust form of telepathy and all minds can join as one. Well, would you like that or not? You could lose part of yourself in the process. And that might be scary to some people. But if it, let's say that that was the cost to have actual world peace. To if everyone's minds somehow joined together, uh, would would we be willing to pay the price? And my guess is that if you ask that question right now, of people, you'd find a lot of people, maybe even the majority, saying even if that were to produce world peace, I still wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, that's shocking so, as well. Huh? Yeah, yeah. so that says that if, uh, from a civilization or a global mind standpoint, we're still are in adolescent phase. We we're not mature enough to be able to see why something like a global mind would be a, a really good thing mm-hmm. i love that point by the way as well and when you were saying that about there about the effects on their sort of the impact on society it was actually making me think as well if we are sort of connected by a global mind i was actually thinking it's everyone is sort of connected and people all over because it's there is if you look around the world now there is this sort of like a disparity between sort of people how um certain people have lots more money than other people and things like that i mean it makes me ask, obviously ask the question as well how that would impact the mind of someone who's look walking down the street and just see sort of a tramp who's sleeping on the street roof or something like that like how that would affect it would sort of that would shift something inside his mind to sort of help the person as well sure yeah i mean they just take the golden rule as a way of thinking about uh, the virtuous human behavior you do unto, unto others as you'd like to be done unto yourself yeah and so if you could feel 
what it feels like to be a homeless person sleeping on the street, well, that's not very pleasant. And so you do whatever is necessary in order to change that. So that would change uh, economic uh, inequities very quickly. It would change uh, war would disappear almost overnight. Uh, lots of things would change very rapidly. And when you think about the, the structure of civilization and business, there are an awful lot of people who want to maintain the status quo, right? All the people involved in making uh, arms and munitions, for example, they're doing great. Yeah, it's a, it's multi-billion dollar business. Why would they ever want to give up something like that? Well, they don't. And so there's an enormous amount of pressure to not make a peaceful world and to maintain inequalities because a lot of people's businesses and lives depend upon it. So this, this, I think, is a sign of an immature society, an immature uh, world, um, mm. because it's not sustainable, among other things. And if, as soon as something is not sustainable, well, it's great for a little while, but it, eventually it's going to descend into complete chaos. And that doesn't sound like it's very good. Wow. Yeah, Dean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I think something very interesting is when we just like talking about um, one global mind, and I think... If we actually look, say, like um, we are all a part, big part of this brain function of Earth, and what does that make us humans? Well, we are the catalyst of its thoughts. So, like, obviously, because uh, I always wondered why the mind actually self-destructs and why does actually why does it actually produce bad thoughts? But say we are on one global consciousness and we're on one global mind, that makes like bad people or people who do bad things. In, or they are the bad thoughts and just like people who do good things they are the good thoughts and it just makes us that makes me think of the question like if say like if this brain is like at this stage of like level where it's like protruding all these different thought patterns maybe it's still in this like teenage infancy infancy mm-hmm. yeah if you the moment you allow the possibility of telepathy then you also have to allow the possibility that uh, you're going to be sensitive maybe at an unconscious level, but sensitive to people who are, are angry and violent and just as sensitive to people who are peaceful and calm. So some aspect of your thoughts and your feelings are, are due to yourself, but not all. You're being, you're being buffeted around by the, the thoughts and emotions of others. If you push that, you can easily end up being completely paranoid and schizophrenic. And I actually think that in some cases of what we think of as mental illness, that these are people who find it difficult to discriminate between their own thoughts and the thoughts and emotions of others. So I have great sympathy for someone who feels like they're hearing voices or getting urges to do something that they don't, they personally are not interested in doing, because maybe they're just flagrantly psychic and they don't know how to turn it off. In a, in a different society, a person like that might have been recognized as having the abilities of a shaman, and the society would take care of them and help them develop their abilities so that they, they don't fear them, uh, but they can use them in a, in a wise way. But our society is not built like that anymore. So we end up with lots of people who are described as having mental illness who might otherwise, in another context, actually be quite useful for society. Yeah. That's not to say that there can be actual brain problems, and some schizophrenics and people with mental illness really do have a problem, uh, 
but it, it, what I'm trying to do then is, is uh, pr- present a new possibility that at least some people who have those ca- capacities actually are talented in a way that we don't know how to treat yet. Wow. A brilliant answer again, by the way. And I just wanted to touch on this as well with you because um, this was a question. This is a bit off topic, but this is a question I just thought I wanted to throw into the mix because um, I was actually walking around the other day and I had this pop in my head and I thought I've got to ask you this because um, it's something I'm really, I really would if I if we ran out of time, I would have uh, regretted to sort of not ask you. But um, I would love to see your thoughts on this. And do you know, like, in terms of sort of um, the telepathic communication that goes on through sort of mystical experiences and psychedelic experiences. So when people have like a um, like a psychedelic experience or a mystical experience, they talk about that the communication that goes on in that place, wherever it is, is sort of like a telepathic exchange. I mean, I was actually wondering, is this ability actually being... I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I just a thought that I would love to see your thoughts on. I mean, is this ability to actually sort of telepathically communicate, is this actually being opened up through sort of DMT or even the, the chemicals in our body? Or maybe this is sort of actually sort of all this all this process of the process to get into that state of that altered state of consciousness is that actually sort of opening up the pathway in ourselves to access this ability to communicate telepathically and that's quite a big question but i would just love to see your thoughts on it well so my my idea on this is that uh from an evolutionary point of view as i said that our ordinary state of awareness Mm -hmm. ordinary waking state is the worst possible state to be psychic in because we've been we've been shaped to not pay attention to things that are far away. Uh, but almost any state that is non-ordinary, whether it's it's dreaming or drumming or taking psychedelics or you name it, almost all of those states, psychic abilities become much better. So it it does seem as though there's maybe nothing special about DMT or other psychedelics other than it pushes you hard away from the ordinary state. And so this is, it's like a secondary way or an indirect way of demonstrating that the ordinary waking state, the one that we need to remain grounded and have a job and things of that sort, uh, generally that's not really so great for, for psychic abilities. But all of these other states are fantastic because it, it in essence, it gets the frontal lobes out of the way. When we think of a lot of, of ordinary state uh, functioning is related to frontal lobe analytical ability, uh, naming things, language, those kinds of things. And the moment that you drop all of that through meditation or drugs or other methods, then other aspects of your awareness are allowed to come to the fore. In fact, in training, like if you're learning how to do remote viewing or clairvoyance, most of the training involved is to get is to step aside from the analytical portion of the brain and the mind so for example one of the first things you learn in in learning how to do clairvoyance is not to name your impressions right you get some kind of a sensory glimpse of something and we're so used to immediately naming what that thing is uh, that that is almost always wrong so an example I, I have in my book on this is you're learning how to do remote viewing and uh, somebody has a, a hidden target that they put in an envelope and stick in a drawer somewhere and your job is to clairvoyantly describe what's in the envelope in the drawer. Well, so you, you kind of direct your mind in that, in that, towards that direction and you get a very fast flash of something yellow. And almost instantly 
you're going to start thinking about bananas because because of the way that the mind works with associations. So yellow is must be a banana because what else could be yellow? Well, that's probably wrong. And so the training process is that you notice that you immediately try to inflate it into a banana and you write that down and you say, no, maybe it's not a banana, but at least you get it out of your head and you allow the raw impression, the raw sensory impression to uh, to build, to get more information, not just a snatch of yellow, but something else, more and more things. And eventually, uh, with enough training and some talent, you'll get what the actual picture is and not based on your assumption. So all of this stuff is all frontal lobe. This is the frontal lobe part of the brain, which is trying to name things and immediately grasp and understand what it is, and you need to get that out of the way. And that's, among other things, that's what drugs generally do, psychedelics. Well, I love that, by the way. It was a brilliant answer as well, and it's very interesting because I was actually thinking in my head when you were talking about the frontal lobe there as well. I was reading somewhere in a, a book, I can't remember what book it was, but Albert Huxley was talking about how the actual, the, talking about how the mind itself actually has a filtering operating system within it as well, which was very, mm-hmm. which was, I thought was very fascinating, and um, it makes me obviously, in my head there, I was just sort of uh, putting two and two things together as well, and it makes me think as well, if we do look at the world now, all the sort of the sensory input that we're getting hit by constantly all the time, I mean, everyone walks around with a mobile phone in the pockets all the time now and it's like a constant addiction to be like getting this constant like flux of data in your mind and it just i just want to make a point really it's very interesting how the how the how the mind is actually being pulled all over so we might have this psychic ability that's in one area of the mind then you've got all the sensory input in the other other side of the mind and then you've got sort of our own filter mechanism trying to decipher what's good and what's bad and i think sometimes in society the mind's just being pulled all over the place not just sometimes all the time all the time yeah yeah, it's it's except for people who have a, a disciplined meditative practice, our minds are being distracted constantly. And it, of course, it's much worse for for younger people who don't know a time when there wasn't an internet and and cell phones or smartphones. So for them to to not have contact to the internet for like five minutes, they start to go insane. And this is probably not a good direction that we're moving into, especially given that within the smartphone industry, the these devices keep shrinking smaller and smaller and eventually will be bonded to your body in some way. And that, that will create a very different kind of person eventually. And maybe way less psychic than, than people are even today. But I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Definitely, I think we will. Um, Dean, um, I would love to touch on like your time working for the Stargate project, like when you were recruited for the Stargate program. Like, How did that come about and what were you doing for them? Well, I was giving a, a talk at a conference, a parapsychology conference, uh, in 1981. And at the time, I was working at Bell Laboratories, which, is a, uh, which was, still is, I guess, a, a very large telecommunications laboratory in the United States where things like the transistor and uh, communication satellites and other fancy things like that were developed. Uh, so it was a little bit unusual in that uh, being a person from at Bell Labs doing research on psychic phenomena, that, that, was, that didn't happen very often. So I didn't know it at the time, but there were people in the audience who were working uh, on Stargate and by the way, Stargate is one, just one name of many code words. So it's, it's 
sort of an umbrella term that covers the whole U.S. government thing. It had a different code name at the time. Well, they were in the audience. They, they liked what I said. Uh, and so we started discussing possibilities. And it, it took another couple of years before there was an opening. Uh, and then they invited me to to join the project. And it was the kind of uh, offer that you can't refuse. So that that's how it happened. Wow. I was wondering as well because I really I loved how Chris asked that question because I wanted to ask you that question as well. <laughs> but because uh, I definitely want to dig into that because I think our listeners would love to uh, dig further into that. But something I want to ask you on that as well. I mean, when you, when you had your time working for the sort of the government and working on the Stargate project, I know you said there was it sort of just under the umbrella of loads of different names. But at, at that time, when you were sort of like um, fo- really focusing loads of attention on psychic abilities, was there any sort of like really interesting things that come up at the time of that work? when you were really sort of, when everyone was in that room sort of believing that this was real? Well, it wasn't a matter of people believing that it's real, but working with extremely talented remote viewers, mostly for purposes of espionage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to me, the most interesting thing was uh, after I got all of the various clearances that were involved, this was um, above top secret or a form of top secret, which is is compartmentalized, so it's one of the so-called black projects. So hardly anybody even knew that this project existed. Uh, and so when I got the briefing on on what was going on, it was it was mind blowing because I was seeing cases of remote viewing by very talented people uh, for operational missions and for experiments. So. Experiments are pretty straightforward. Somebody somewhere that get the psychic to have a description of where they are. And the descriptions, in some cases, were practically veridical. It's like somebody was looking at the person and just drawing a picture of where they were, even though they might be on the other side of the planet. And the operational missions were uh, uh, concepts and ideas and structures and people, all kinds of things that are of interest to the intelligence agencies where they don't know what the right answer is. They might have a photograph from a satellite and there's a building and they ask, well, what's inside that building? And nobody on our side knows what it is. So there's no answer yet. So the psychic somehow mentally goes inside the building and draws stuff and gives a description of it. And then uh, sometimes months later, sometimes a year later, there would be ground knowledge. Someone would figure out what was actually going on inside there. Uh, and then they match it up to what the psychic said. And there are a number of cases where the psychics were absolutely correct to, again, almost like a veridical degree, like they're, they took a photograph and we're now just drawing a photograph. Wow. So this was able to happen often enough that the project was used by almost every intelligence agency in the United States. Uh at least a dozen different agencies had heard about this in one way or the other. And so they used the project as a way of gaining intelligence in cases where they couldn't get it in any other way. So that was, that was interesting. What was also interesting is that at the time and still somewhat today that within the project, this was not no longer just wondering if these things were real, but they were being used in a pragmatic way. But the moment you step outside the building, you're no longer in the classified environment, it didn't even exist, yeah. right? People, you, you couldn't go down the street and start talking about what you're doing because it was classified. But when you talk to other scientists, 
about, well, what do they think about psychic phenomena? And they would ham and haw and say, well, I don't know, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't, but they're not persuaded. So it's kind of maddening to be in a position where you go to work, you're using it for real pragmatic, important things every day, and then outside you can't even talk about it because people don't even think it's real. But it's that schizophrenic split which actually made it very valuable because if you have what amounts to a secret weapon – you don't want people to even know that it exists, right? If, if this particular, it's not a weapon, but if this particular intelligence method is real, it is to your advantage for everyone else to think that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that's incredible. It's, it's, so, it's unbe- unbelievable, really. And Dean, to your knowledge, like, are the government still putting money and focus into this area of psychic abilities? I don't know. I, I hope that, the, that somebody is somewhere. Because the, the, with talented people, it can be useful. But if it's a classified program, I don't know. I, I, by definition, I'm not, I no longer work in that world, and so I, I can't know, and I don't know. Mm. Wow, it's, it'll be interesting. I hope they do, to be honest. Yeah. Dane, oh, Dane, do you think, like, in the future, that science will come to accept psychic abilities? And, and like, how will, do you think this will come about, and what are the social, social implications? Well, as a, a real phenomena, eventually, yes, science will expand as it always has, becomes more and more comprehensive. I think we're seeing the glimmerings of uh, a, a, a way for these abilities to become part of the mainstream, and primarily through uh, quantum biology. So 10 to 15 years ago, it was thought that quantum mechanics was very esoteric thing that only existed in exotic locations and it was very fragile and all that stuff. Uh, And so it was, most physicists thought that uh, quantum phenomena could not exist in living systems because we're too hot and we're too dynamic and so on. Well, since the rise of quantum biology, in which we, we see now that there are some aspects of living systems which not only have quantum phenomena but need them in order to to work correctly the the thing about the quantum world is that the effects occur outside of space-time or before space-time and so it's interesting that we have psychic phenomena which also exist outside of space-time and the possible relationship then between things that are not exactly in space-time Maybe this connects physics with psychic phenomena. So there are a lot of physicists who say, no, that's ridiculous. There's no connection there at all. Well, I beg to differ, because the moment that you you see that there's a relationship between what we know is physically true now in the quantum sense and experiences which look an awful lot like those phenomena, then it would be foolish to simply deny that there's any connection. That what should be done is to start doing experiments to explore it. So that's what I've been up to for the last uh, eight years now, almost nine years already, uh, where we're, we're using quantum systems as targets in experiments involving mind-matter interaction to see if there really is a connection between what we will talk about in terms of non-local mind interacting with non-local matter. And so far the experiment suggests that the connection is real. There really is a connection at this level, uh, and there aren't very many other people doing these kinds of experiments, so it's not having a big impact in science yet, but I think it, it may be the, the, uh, the tip of an iceberg 
And as more and more people begin to think about these ideas and do experiments, that they'll begin to discover what we've already seen. And it doesn't mean that that psychic phenomena are explained by quantum phenomena. But what it does says is that the direction that physics has evolved from classical to quantum, that evolution will continue. And the direction of the evolution will become more and more compatible with understanding how psychic phenomena work. Wow. Dean, we just have to say thank you for actually giving us all your knowledge throughout this podcast. It was an absolute pleasure of you being a guest on here and we really hope and we really have learned so much and we hope everyone else has as well who's listening to this yeah i would just like to say as well dean thank you so much as well for becoming on the podcast because we actually had a lot of um a lot of our listeners did reach out to us to ask ask to get you onto the podcast and i just want to say as well thank you so much for listeners who did sort of send us in your direction because honestly like some of your researchers you do really delve really deep into it and it's honestly it's an absolute pleasure to be able to talk about a big subject like this and really do the really do the topic so much justice as well and also do your research justice as well so thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thanks for asking me yeah definitely wow now that was some interesting stuff there in the podcast and a lot of stuff to think about dean really does know his stuff on the topic of the psychic phenomenon and it is quite a sticky conversation and a one that people do just laugh at and just dismiss straight away without really doing due diligence and looking at the research. And this, the psychic phenomenon, in my opinion, certainly is going to be very interesting to see how this actually plays out in the future in terms of when the advancement of technology does come around. And once more people do start understanding the topic more. So anyway, please check out Dean's work at his website, www.deanradon.com, and also check out all of his books, The Conscious Universe and Tangled Minds, The Supernormal, and he also has a new book coming out as well very soon. If you guys are loving the podcasts, please just take a few minutes and check out the different rewards, and in the process, support the podcast. And this can all be simply found at our Send Patreon page. And we really would love to connect with you all in the up and coming Ascend Hangout. So anyway, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We'll catch you next week. Keep seeking everyone. Peace.